Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals links to the source material from all of our adapted film discussions. Purchasing through our links support the show at no extra cost to you. In Season 12, the focus was big franchises and series. We covered both Paddington films, adapted from the beloved children's book character created by Michael Bond. Oh, I love those films so much. Hugh Grant is perfect. For our Pitch Perfect series, the first film was adapted from Mickey Rapkin's nonfiction book about collegiate acapella competitions. It's like a short story of my life, literally. I lived college acapella. Sing it, brother. I lived college acapella. <laughs> I didn't mean literally. <laughs> You know who you're talking to, right? The Twilight Saga dominated the season with five films adapted from Stephanie Meyer's vampire romance novels, Twilight, New Moon, Eclipse, and the two Breaking Dawn parts. Dominated with awkward romance and nonsense logic is more like it. <laughs> that too. Another Thin Man brought us back to Dashiell Hammett's only Thin Man sequel based on other Hammett material, The Farewell Murder, that wasn't just based on the characters from the first film. We talked about Train Spotting and its sequel, T2 Train Spotting, adapted from Irvine Welsh's novels. Ugh, I hate the sequel's name. I do too. And the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy, adapted from J.R.R. Tolkien's epic fantasy series. Love these. Extended editions all the way, baby. Plus, all the Mission Impossible films based on the 1960s TV series. And we've still got at least one more to go. Members got to hear us chat about The Hustler and The Color of Money, adapted from Walter Tevis's books. Get all of these books and more at our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. Start your next read from the movies we've covered at thenextreel.com slash originals. (laughs) 
I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Back to the Future Part 3 is over. You're not thinking fourth dimensionally. From out of the West, in a cloud of dust, a thunder of hooves, and a mighty... Great Scott. I know, this is heavy. And This summer, Marty and Doc go back one more time for their greatest adventure of all. Doc's living in the past. Just try it, Tanner! But he's about to be history. What kind of a future do you call that? I'm going back to 1885 and I'm bringing you home. It's the last roundup. It's the final showdown. Hey, lighten up, jerk. Where Marty makes a name for himself. What's your name, dude? Eastwood. Clint Eastwood. What kind of stupid name is that? Doc meets his mate. This hit my life. I'm a proud of your service. And Tannen meets his match. I'll hug you and shoot you down like a duck. Dog, Buford. Shoot him down like a dog. Michael J. Fox. Where'd you learn to shoot like this? 7-Eleven. Christopher Lloyd. There's a fella that can't hold his liquor. And Mary Steenburgen. I never ever met a man like you before. <clears throat> Gentlemen, excuse me, but my friend and I have to catch the train. This summer, Steven Spielberg and Robert Zemeckis invite you. Come on, Marty! To the Rough Rider, Rip Roar, Rootin' Tootin', Straight Shootin'. It's a hold up! It's a science experiment! Rousing conclusion of Back to the Future. Let the festivities begin! Back to the Future, Part 3. All right, Andy, this is it. It's the end. This is the end. Da, 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 da. This is the end of Back to the Future. Uh, it, we finally get a the end. At the end. No more talking about flying DeLoreans. Uh, although Thank I could God. use a movie about a flying train. More on that later. There's something that you can give you more flying train, Pete. What? Back to the Future, the animated series. <sighs> I don't know anything about that. <laughs> I don't know anything about that. I've never watched an episode of Back to the Future, the animated series. Is it worth watching? You're missing out. Uh, it's fine. It's fine. Okay. It's, uh, it was All a right. fun animated show that followed. It was kind of following the adventures of of Doc uh, and his family as they travel through time in their flying train. I mean, oh. it's it, there's so Marty and Jennifer. Gone. No, Marty and Jennifer are still in it, but it and and I gosh, I can't. It's been a long time. I can't remember if they're the main character, but it seems like we spend more time with Doc Brown and his family, or if Doc Brown and his family are the main characters, and and we drop in and visit Marty and Jennifer from time to time. But there's definitely a lot of the family in the train. Fly All train. Right. Well, well, that is hereby enough of talking about the animated series because we're here to talk about part three of this show. We're going back to the past all the way back to 1885. Got to get back yeah. in time, yeah. except for that's Huey Lewis. And this is, we know, all ZZ Top all the time. Hey, we still get that. We get back in time at the very end. Mm-hmm. 
Well, all right. Still there. ZZ Top and the spinning guitars. Okay. What do you think about this uh, this movie? I think you like this best of all. That's my call. This is your favorite of the three. Controversial opinion. Well, you're wrong, (laughs) but I do enjoy it. I do enjoy it. Uh, I enjoy it more than the second one and not as much as the first one. Yeah, I think we end up on the same page. I feel like the third one actually makes good on a lot of the things that that the second one maybe leaned into too hard. Some of the, the it just ended up being mumbo jumbo uh, and a, a strong lack of peripheral vision. And it really deflated in my latest watch of it. it. And I was worried about watching Back to the Future Part 3 because I thought these things made side by or back to back. I hope it's not nonsense. It was not nonsense. I had a really, really good time with this movie and um, and and a a really good time like going back sometimes you watch the movie and you're just sort of done with it i really enjoyed watching the movie and then like watching all the special features and reading up on how they got it made and the stresses and struggles of making it happen and and the the life that that occurs while making a movie is uh, uh, it, it was an interesting story to me so yeah i am in favor of this movie i am glad it exists this is one of those films that I kind of, oh, as as time progresses from viewing to viewing, there are a lot of issues that I have with it that kind of fade. But when I watch it, I'm like, oh, I forgot about this whole thing or, or that mm-hmm. thing and this thing and that thing. And so I definitely have a lot of that sort of stuff throughout this film that does drive me crazy. Mm-hmm. And I'm finding as I get more distant from... Uh, from the 80s and early in 1990, when I first watched it, I, I find that there are things in here that I just struggle with more and more. Uh, that being said, I still have a lot of fun with this one. I love that it kind of it it steps away from let's make a whole bunch of money and turns into kind of an actual love story at the heart of it uh, between Doc and uh, Clara. And I uh, that's something I really enjoy is that it, it feels like they're doing something a little... Uh, different and weirdly um, probably more in line with what um, uh, Crispin Glover would have actually preferred as opposed to just being all about the money and so I I think it's funny that um, they end up here and I I really end up enjoying so much of the heart of this film even with a lot of the issues that I have I I think so too. I I want to talk about that in a in a minute, specifically about where this movie fits in the overall arc of yes, the Back yes. to the Future universe. Well, let's do that in a second. Uh, so when the movie came out, it was rated PG at the time of its release here in the states, according to the ridiculous MPAA, and that is for some mild violence, gore, <laughs> profanity, and some uh, spittooning. <laughs> <laughs> And drinking some, some intense bucket head <laughs> drinking alcohol that that burns the bar top when you spill it. <laughs> okay, Andy, we're doing the thing again when this movie opens. We're doing the thing where we're repeating the end of the of the movie to start this movie. Yes. It's funny because as I watch things that were shot back to back, I was thinking about this with like the Matrix films or with the Lord of the Rings films, and they don't feel the need to do repeating action. This film could have legitimately started. I mean, this film was released six months after the first film. 
it legitimately could have started with Marty driving up to uh, to Doc's house and helping him in after he had passed out. But no, we actually <laughs> end with essentially the the climax of the first film as as we see it in the climax of the second film when he uh you know is driving the DeLorean down the main drag in 1955 and Doc Brown slides down the cable and plugs it in just in time for the lightning bolt to hit and and course the 1.21 gigawatts of power into the wire and him and the DeLorean sending the DeLorean into the future Doc Brown runs and dances down the street and then Marty uh, comes running around the corner. All of this was the revised version that we saw at the end of part two, and then Doc Brown passes out. I don't know. It's. I, I guess it was fine to see that again, uh, but I just I wasn't sure how necessary it was to kind of do that. Was it was it weird to start that with that again, and as opposed to just kind of from from that point on. I don't know that I I have a strong opinion about this other than I can kind of feel or or at least make some internal assumptions about what Zemeckis and Gale were going for, that it it feels like an in-universe kind of gimmick that all the movies do this kind of of, you know, repeat bit to get you into it. It might have been a callback from an older day because what they were trying to do was to create this sense of of narrative immediacy. And yet the movies were released a year apart or whatever. like. They uh, it it felt to me like an okay bit of consistency because they want this movie to feel like it starts the next minute. And uh, so I, I think they could have started on the hill and with the you know, with the car driving up and and uh, or or that wonderful there's sort of that slow tour around Doc's place as as Marty's sleeping and his feet are up on the hoverboard. That's kind of a nice way to open. But I don't I, I don't hate it the way it opens i actually find it kind of charming and it does get me into the spirit of the film well it's funny because in the in the second film it repeats the end of the first film as a way to essentially introduce us to the new jennifer that's legitimately the only reason that they needed to do that at the end of the second film into the beginning of the third film there's nothing different and it's funny because the thing that immediately comes to mind and it's not doing this, but it feels like, are they, was there, and was there some, at some point, some intention, but it, it, it's, it makes me think of misery when, when uh, Kathy Bates character is talking about the serial that she watched and how at the end of it, you know, the car goes off the cliff and she comes back the next week to watch the thing. And it shows that scene play out, but you see him jump out of the car before it goes off the cliff. And she's like, he didn't jump out of the cocky duty car, like that whole thing that drove her so crazy. And so it makes me think, like, are they because there's nothing different about this one. And so it, it just makes me like, should I be scrutinizing this more closely? Is there actually something that I'm supposed to be getting out of it? And I know I'm probably overthinking it far too much. Well, I um, think you are. But it is one of those things. It does make me um, instantly start questioning, you know, what are what are Gail and Zemeckis up to with this particular film that is going to shift any particular parts of the story that we had seen before? 
Okay, I, I think you're I think you're right on. I think you're overthinking. I think what happened probably practically was we had to do this thing to introduce the new Jennifer in the, in the beginning of the second movie. But because we had that and it was kind of fun, we're going to just go ahead and do that this time, too. I think it was just a really practical thing. Yeah, and, and 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 this really was one of the first times where they had actually done, if not the first time, where they had done a back to back to back filming, and the release was so close to each other that they were legitimately probably just saying, you know, let's just do this. It's it's a fun way to just kind of get everybody back into the this mind frame or this mindset of where we are in context of the story. Yeah. I think so. I think it was as simple as that. And I think it is a great excuse to give us to transition us from the street scene over to Doc's house and to do so with one of the most beautiful pieces of 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 modded music by Silvestri. This new theme in this in this scene is gorgeous. I love the way it introduces us to this film. And uh, I love the way it takes us into all the way up to the howdy doody. Um, I think it's great. Yeah, I love Silvestri's score here. His piece uh, at the end, whether on the train, is yeah. some of my favorite in the whole trilogy. Uh, the the actual closing credits music for the film is uh, just, I mean, it's, I think, just a, a great um, mix of all the different pieces from the film. I just, it's, it is one of my favorites of, uh, I mean, really, we talked about our favorite Zemeckis' scores, and I may actually say Back to the Future 3 might be my favorite of the trilogy here, more so than Back to the Future, just because it has those additional elements to it. Yeah, I that was something I had completely forgotten about uh, about this movie, was just how good the, the score was. The uh, Huey Lewis in the first movie, I know this is kind of for our, our retake, which we'll need to talk about, but um, the Huey Lewis Back in Time track was a great addition to the first movie. Can you Do you know the title of the ZZ Top track? We're off the top of your head. Yeah, it's Double Back. It is Double Back, but you had to kind of work for that. Like, you, you, you well, looked no, up I, and to the left. You totally NLP'd yourself. Uh, it's Double Back. That I, well, it's I know it was a time I thing, and I was, so I was trying to remember what it was. But yeah, but but do you can you sing it? No, but what I can always what I always go to with ZZ Top in this film is their hoedown, whatever you call it, music <laughs> that they're playing at the dance, like yeah. like that whole thing. Like that's that's where my brain goes when yeah. I think of ZZ Top in this film. Not ever double back. Yeah, never double back. And I think that I, I could start singing back in time uh, right now. Double back, I can't place at all. So, um, you know, I don't know that, that ZZ Top as stunt music was was the best choice, but maybe maybe at the time I would have felt differently. Well, they look so. the part, though. Like when you see them playing in the uh, the town square, yeah, it feels it's... like, you know, I can I can buy that. Yeah. I, all right. I don't buy them right. as a problem in the movie, the context of the film. I agree. I don't think that their their song um, necessarily fits as well. Uh, but also, it's like, I, you know, I don't know. ZZ Top was never a group that I was, like, I like a couple of their songs, but I never, like, you know, followed them or anything. Yeah. All right. So this movie, I, you know, listening to Zemeckis talk about kind of the over and, and Gail talk about the overall arc of the of the three movies. Zemeckis pulls this the the change character card that Marty 
over the course of these, all these movies is not the principal change character in any of the movies. And in this one, this one is no different, that the character that we are really following, this is Doc Brown's story. This is his love story. It is such a love story, in fact, and such a novelty for Christopher Lloyd that this was his first on-screen kiss in his career, Christopher Lloyd. Um, it is the story of him finding his humanity through family. Which, what, do, what do you take? What do you, what do you take away from all that? Yeah, I mean, I, that's that's one of the things that I do love. As I said, I love that this this story really is Doc Brown's story. We're watching him change his opinion on time travel and uh, the repercussions, uh, which is kind of funny, really. Uh, but still, he's he's kind of gaining a new perspective on life and on love and on the purpose of living and and all of that. And I I find that very touching and powerful with the way that the the characters that we've been presented with uh, up to this point have played out and i love that we get that side of doc brown you know falling you know falling in love at first sight and and how it changes him and what that means to him and and everything i i really enjoy the journey of that well, what I love so much about it, what I love that the movie is is poking at is the fact that they actually let Doc know a lot of stuff, right? They let him know when he's going to die. He sees the gravestone. They let him know that love is coming and he shuns it, right? He refuses the call to have any sort of hope that he's going to fall in love with this Clara character at all. Even as he learns, it becomes increasingly difficult to avoid that future, right? That, oh, don't worry, I just have to not meet Clara. Oh, well well, here comes the mayor. I need you to go pick up the new teacher. Her name's Clara. So all of these things stand in Doc, in the way of Doc trying to uh, avoid all of the, like he's trying to avoid all of the hints of the future, all of the the ways he could corrupt the future, et cetera, et cetera. And then he meets her and, and the uh, actual connection, the love at first sight connection is just too strong. And uh, I, I find that incredibly touching i love that 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 is part of both doc's transformation as a scientist right as a and as kind of a, a whack job and and uh at the same time he he becomes more sort of humane through meeting her and that it is unavoidable i think it's great well and that speaks to a certain extent the inevitability of elements within the kind of the way that time plays out and yes. we've seen it in other movies that uh where that deal with time travel where um and maybe not time travel but now i guess i'm thinking of destiny and like the idea of destiny yeah. and how certain characters are meant to do something and my brain instantly went to the final destination franchise which is totally different but still <laughs> that whole idea of you if you if you do something different than what you're supposed to do the universe is going to find a way to get things back on track so that still happens yes and i don't know what that says about doc brown and any of his time travel theories because none of it actually would make sense in context of a scientist and the realities of time travel versus like how the universe works and a, a concept of destiny and and that um you know the whole you know you can't change the future it's always going to like there's this set path for things to go i don't know it's it's an interesting element that's added here and um and and i think it's interesting but i i think that's 
I may run into some of my own issues with kind of what the what the franchise is saying about time travel and all that. But what it does do is it allows for that kind of that final transition for Doc Brown's character. And that's, I think, why I end up, you know, forgiving it in so many ways. Well, we should probably talk about what you have to forgive then, Andy. Well, just the idea of Doc Brown had been so adamant about you can't you can't change anything. You know, the future is set and we've got to, you know, we can't, we've got to put everything back the way it was because things have to play out the way it is. And then by the end of this film, you know, he's in one of the, my least favorite bits in the entire franchise. It's when Jennifer comes up to him with the facts, like a complete buffoon. It's just, God, the exposition in this is just awful. And the direction of it, the performance, everything. When she's like, but Doc Brown, when I had this fax, it had something on it and then it disappeared. And what does that mean? And like all that stuff. You can tell she's even struggling with delivering that line. Like it's just impossible. It's it's so bad. And he's just like, it means the future is not written and it can whatever we want to do. And I'm like, that's just, I mean, that's great now. And I guess it's good that you came to this at this point in the franchise, as opposed to the beginning when he said, ah, screw it. Yeah. You know, let's, let's leave it the way it is. Um, so it's, I don't know. It's, it's an interesting, uh, that's, I, I guess the, the transition that, you know, as far as, as far as his journey goes, it makes sense. And I suppose some of that could be seen as like, there's a little bit of kind of like that selfish joy in, in acknowledging that, like, you know, I may be screwing everything up or, or he, I guess he would have been saying Marty is screwing all this stuff up with, the, with the future. We've got to get it back because he's making a mess of things. But when I'm doing it and I'm taking my wife and we're going up to the future, we're fixing my train to make it, you know, futuristic and flying and all this stuff. It's all right. Cause it's us, you know, so I guess there's a little bit of that, but I, I end up forgiving it. I, well, I, I think that's really important because, uh, like, the entire premise is get back to the future and destroy the DeLorean. Right. And then get out of the way because I've made a new one. Right. That was that was the whole <laughs> <laughs> the whole premise was stop time travel. You're right. Except for mine. Yeah. Right. That's that's it. And now we're spreading it by having these two. And did you have the same note that those two kids look totally sociopathic? Like they're going to have be problematic <laughs> later. Those kids I, are now no time travel and they're going to be like time murderers. I didn't have that note, but I did say, hmm, I bet neither of them really had a film career. <laughs> <laughs> And I didn't even look, but I should check and see. Maybe, maybe they've had much more robust uh, career yeah. than I. Uh, let me look up the Brown children and see. But what was they... the note? Do you think that Zemeckis gave these kids when they're introduced? Like, okay, we're going to have you be <laughs> revealed. You're going to jump off the little seat and come in the camera view, and I want you to look like you're about to boil a bunny. <laughs> like you're gonna, you're gonna start. You're gonna find a younger child and start pulling its fingernails out with pliers. Like you're excited about that. It's awful. We have Jules and Vern. Jules um, was played by Todd Cameron Brown. Interestingly, he's actually a Brown. Oh, funny. Uh, he was in two films worth winning in 1989 and this in 1990. Plus, he was in. Uh, he has five TV credits in shows ranging from 1988 to 91. So. Okay. Uh, Fairly small film career. And then the other, uh, Vern, was played by Daniel Evans, and he was only in two things, an episode of Erie, Indiana in 91, and this film. And that was it. Well, they I'm sure they went on to thriving 
uh, careers as pediatricians. I'm sure in the world they're very kind and they were given bad direction. I think so. Yeah, that's because movies are hard. Okay. Uh, that out of the way. This, uh, so we get this movie. We got to talk about uh, the relationship stuff real quick. Well, before we go into the relationship, I, I just want to talk about a couple time since we're, we since we kind of were setting it up with time travel and all this. Okay, there are a couple time things that I have questions for you about. Oh, good. Yeah, they're minor, but still things that I that I I feel like when the filmmakers were working on this, they should have caught these elements because I feel like is this a glitch in time? So the first thing, Marty, so Doc Brown. Um, in 1955, buys Marty or has Marty get dressed in some Western wear, which looks very much like Howdy Doody time sort of stuff that they're seeing on TV. It's it's that kind of very colorful uh, rodeo cowboy sort of outfit yeah. that Marty wears and goes back in time in. And in the past, Doc says, "Oh, who dressed you like that?" And Doc or, and Marty says, uh, you did. And it's a gag. It's a joke. It's funny. But Doc should have known that because this is Doc from 1985 who went back to 1885 and had grown up from 1955 to 1985 after having dressed Marty that way. So, yes, it's a 30 year old memory plus, you know, a few weeks, give or take, that he's been in in the 1885. But he should have remembered, especially with all this time travel stuff, that obviously that's the sort of thing that you're really going to remember in your life. Like, holy crap. Yeah. I actually invented time travel. I helped this guy get back and forth in time a bunch of times. And I also dressed him like a crazy cowboy. That he should have known that. Yes, because there was no reason for that particular memory ever to be erased. Right. Like like a picture. And it's one of those things where the movie sets up like this doc wouldn't have known that. But it's the it's actually the older doc. So he would have that would be a memory. He would have known that. Yeah, he would have known that already. Uh, I, I absolutely agree with that. They played yeah. as a joke, but it ends up like when you think about it, it's like, well, wait a minute. That doesn't. Matter. But isn't this this is also sort of the one true Biff problem, the paradox of of one true because there are things that Biff, I feel like, should have known, given all the shenanigans between one and two, that uh, that he should have remembered and didn't. Yeah. So I, I feel like that this one is is a is a good and a fringed call out. Um, and it's problematic in the entire movie. Or entire trilogy. So what's the next one? When they go to the grave, the the uh, the cemetery, and they find Emmett's tombstone. Yes, shot over a matter of eighty dollars. Shot over a matter, but un- underneath that it says, um, "What does it say?" Like remembered by his beloved Clara or something. Yes, shot in the back by Buford Tannen over a matter of eighty dollars, erected in eternal memory by his beloved Clara. By his beloved. Clara and what was what her last name like Clara Clayton, Shot Clara Clayton. Clayton. Clara so Clayton. as we find out the ravine in 1985 is Clayton Ravine but when we go back to 1885 it's Shonash Ravine mm-hmm. and it so becomes renamed it is re, renamed the Clayton Ravine because she drives off the edge of it in this in this wagon how do both of those things happen because if she's dead, she would not have been able to meet Doc Brown. The wagon, she would have gone over the cliff in the wagon 
when she in the very beginning of the movie, right? When when Doc and before he was killed, he's killed several days later. Yes. Right. And he rescues her from going over the. The wagon, right? That's the big rescue. And the wagon tumbles to its and breaks up at the bottom of the ravine. Correct. Is it okay? Later, it is renamed. Is it renamed because there is some connection to the fact that she was on that? Like somebody knows she was on the train and the train goes into the ravine and explodes. And people think she was on it, but she was actually pulled out and taken away on a voyage through time. No, because now it's Eastwood Ravine. Oh, that's a very good point, because they think he's the one. And somehow everyone connects this person who stole the train. Let's name the ravine after this this person who showed up for two days in town, stole a train, and now we're going to name a ravine after him. Anyway, I have issues with that gag. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, yeah. I, think, I think I actually just figured it out in my head as you were talking. I think okay. in 1985, it was called Clayton Canyon, and he talks about this, like how every, every kid wished that their teacher would drive off Clayton Canyon or Clayton Ravine. Um, yeah. And, and they, so that's how he knew it was a teacher who died. That whole thing, right? Okay. So I think that it was Clayton Canyon all the way up until Doc Brown went back in time. Now, Marty wouldn't have known that it had changed in 1985 because at the time Doc goes back, it's 1955. And yeah. he wouldn't have known that it was it was now um, not East Clayton Canyon. Uh, no, yeah. Shonash Ravine. Shonash, right, right, right. Because he hasn't gone over to it and they, there's probably no signage anyway at 1955. So that's okay. So I think I figured it out in my head. So I think I'm okay with that one now because I think in 1955, when Doc goes back to 1885, that's the point when suddenly now it becomes, it stays Shonash Ravine. It doesn't change its name to Clayton Ravine. Okay. So I, I don't have an issue with that one anymore. So, okay. Whew. That was two. That was two. Do you have a third one? I don't have a third one, but I do have, a, well, I guess, I don't know. What was the next point? Because my next thing was was casting and faces. I wanted to, I did. I also wanted, this is a good segue. Uh, Marty comes out of the cave and there's a bear in the cave, right? Uh, there's the, the old bear gag. Yeah. Holly, the old bear gag. And he comes running and Marty, the bear's right behind him. Marty comes over this hill and falls and falls, uh, concuss himself on the fence. Shouldn't that bear be like right behind him? Seamus finds Marty and looks to the left and the right, but not up the hill at the bear that is like supposedly right up there. And or charging not down a, at him, <laughs> charging down at it like there's the bear is gone now that the bear is out of frame. We don't see it. This is the inverse of the Spielberg uh, little hide and seek trick. And uh, so the bear's gone. Bear doesn't yeah, exist. The bear because it, it's out that's of because it was a plot. It was a plot. Bear. It's a plot bear. It was it was a plot bear. Yeah, we need not that to our glossary. Chekhov's plot bear, bear. No. because the bear was never used again. So uh, it's not Chekhov's bear. Okay, so that leads us to is discovered by Seamus McFly, and we have now we we have uh, Marty playing his predecessor, <laughs> his his ancestor, and we have um, Leah Thompson again playing uh, now apparently her ancestor Maggie. <laughs> But this is the thing that makes no sense. It's it's Leah Thompson, who is his mother, but she's not with his father. She's with him. And that creates a weird... Does that create any weirdness at all? I hate it. 
I, it's so, I, it breaks my brain every time there is zero reason these people should have been cast as they are. It is just a sight gag. That's all it is. And we don't know what to do with Leah Thompson. She has to be in the third movie kind of a gag. I, I don't, I don't understand it. And it, this is a thing that takes me out of this movie that these people, I, maybe I can see Marty you know, or Michael J. Fox playing his ancestor. Like I, I can sort of get that. Put must put the mustache on him and make him look old Westy. But I can make no reason. There's no reason for Leia Thompson to look like she does. Well, look, I know they had issues with uh, with Crispin Glover uh, in this franchise, but that basically means that his ancestry goes. Look wise, Michael J. Fox, yeah. Michael J. Fox, Michael J. Fox, Michael J. Fox, Crispin Glover, Michael J. Fox, Michael, Michael J. J. Fox, Michael J. Fox, Michael J. Fox, Michael J. Fox. Right. <laughs> like, where is the logic? Like, there's, there's no logic at all. It's, yeah. it's, it's wacky. It is just, just wacky. I, I'm not yeah. a fan. Uh, honestly, as I watch it this time, I, I actually thought as a, when I was younger and I was watching it, I'm like, it's fun. It's, you know, watching, you know, the same face on screen together. And it, it was kind of just a fun way to do it. Yeah. Now, as I watch it, I'm going, oh, of course, this is early Zemeckis doing his let's play ILM. Let's do some fun tech. What do you have? Ooh, let's use this, these motion, co- the motion control cameras. Stuff. Yeah not motion capture, motion control, um, so that we can have the same actor um, in the scene together seamlessly and uh, not just the the static, uh, you know... um, shots that like they were doing back in Freaky, uh, not Freaky Friday, what's the one? uh, Parent Trap. Um, where it's, you know, it's, 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 but it's a locked shot and they would film one half of the film with the other half covered and then they would back the film up and they would do the same thing again, but with the other side covered up so that they could capture Haley Mills twice on, on, on screen together. And at the time that was spectacular. And in the context of a movie about twins, it makes a lot more sense here. When you have this stuff with his ancestors, it just, it starts. It starts getting ridiculous, especially as they start bringing Leah Thompson in. And now she's with Michael J. Fox, who she was in love with in the 50s, but they weren't related in any way at all. But now yeah. somehow she, <laughs> someone who looks just like him. her. Yeah. It's just, is, it, uh, is it in some way narratively? Is it in some way that she is uh, like the reason she's so atta- attracted to Calvin is because she has a genetic memory of being in love with this guy who looks exactly like <laughs> Calvin. Like, is that even possible? <laughs> but like, how do her genes then go from this family to like, I, I guess her family line, maybe it's a distant relative going the other direction who kind of swings back as, yeah. as Lorraine in the fifties. Yeah. I yeah. I, it does. It's not, it's not good. There's no reason that she should she should look like she does. It is complete. It's just bug nuts. Crazy town. It is. It's fun and funny, but it reminds me of two things. One, that the genes don't work the way the movie thinks genes work. And two, they didn't know what to do with Lorraine or with with Leah Thompson in this movie. And the same thing for Elizabeth Shue. And like these are just dramatically underwritten characters in what could have been a really fun trilogy for all the performers and ended up not being that. And and that's what I couldn't help thinking about in this sequence. That's really uh, what it comes down to. I mean, and again, I really do enjoy this film yeah. so much more than the last one. But 
they yeah and i i don't know if that's a uh bob gale and robert zemeckis thing where they just really struggle with getting out of their heads the whole idea of this is about doc and marty and it needs to be just them and everybody else is peripheral um i mean and yes we do have kind of a love story for uh for marty a love story for doc but in no way do they become like as important as just all the time travel stuff going on with Marty and and Doc and that I, you know that's a struggle and it it is it's a bit frustrating because I would really have enjoyed if they were able to like as the story progressed like in the second film it becomes Doc and Marty and Jennifer as they're sorting through stuff and as they go back in time like are we getting more uh, of an expansive story with more characters and you know it could have just been that at the time in the 80s they were just you know they the they didn't have the screenwriting um kind of wherewithal to kind of put a story like that together well i wonder and it does beg the question if the story that we got is in any way overtold right like like is there stuff in here that feels superfluous that maybe we could have massaged more of a story for these other two characters it in some way uh, to make room for it. I think your point is is you know well taken that there's just you know th- th- there are some some holes that could have been filled. I feel like there's an aspirational story in here that would have made great use of everybody and and did not. But yeah, um, yeah. anyway, uh, I love uh, Steenbergen though uh, she's fantastic. Uh, just neat to see her here. Um, sounds like she had a good time. Uh, on this movie, it sounds like that she wasn't going to do it until her kids told her she had to do this movie. Um, yeah, I like all of that. I like all of that sort of backstory getting her into the movie. And I think, you know, as a as sort of a lightweight love interest character, it's fun. Have you seen Time After Time? Oh, yes. I never have. Oh, but talk about a score. God, that piano. Well, but I, as I've read about it, and it's a film I've known about. I mean, I've certainly known it's out there, uh, but I didn't realize that. Uh, and she commented on this how really she's playing like so much the exact same character that she played in that film. Um, yeah, which is is funny how you know she uh, you know I guess eleven years before nineteen seventy nine when that film came out, um, she had fallen in love with a person who said he was uh, from a different time period and doesn't believe him, only to finally admit you know that she does love him and run after him and end up going with him to live in their time and she said it was very weird to to be doing that again <laughs> yeah that was that's very funny. funny and funny. uh yeah so now i'm like gosh, i really should watch that movie finally i think so because who was that that was um malcolm mcdowell malcolm mcdowell, malcolm McDowell and, uh, and david warner david warner right 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 yeah. as um who are they like sherlock holmes and uh no, it's it's Wells. It's Wells. Uh, H.G. Wells. H.G. Wells um, and Jack the Ripper. Yeah. So that's that's a funny little time travel nod, which I yeah. think is, is charming. I really do enjoy Mary Steenburgen in the film. And I feel like so much of it is probably just because her character is so sweet and has this kind of this this easy way about her. That being said, you know, it's not a big part. We don't really get much of her other than 
her being smitten with Doc. (laughs) It's like, that's her story. Unfortunately, like she's moved to town to be a teacher. We never get any of that. We basically start with her as uh, on the runaway stagecoach and then they dance and then he confesses his love to her and says, I can't be with you anymore because I have, I'm from the future and she tells him to get out and then she realizes she loves him and goes after him and we have the whole climax and that's kind of it. And, it's it's not a again speaking to how the characters are just not given that much time it is unfortunate that she also isn't given that much time but it speaks to her mary steenburgen and uh the character that she is so easy to love and i do really enjoy that with her yeah I, she's like she we I, the movie begged for a corset wearing love interest and we got that and uh, you know could this would this have been a uh, an opportunity for a stronger part, maybe in 2022. But at the time, it is what we got. It was a foil character for Doc, and it's it's fine. It's not fine, but it's fine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Speaking of foils, though, uh, what do you think of Tom Wilson back this time as Buford Tannen? I love Tom Wilson more in this movie as Mad Dog, especially because they set him up as Mad Dog because of his like, tendency to what growl and drool a lot. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was awesome. Um, I I think I like him. I, I like him in this movie a lot. I, do I like him better than Griff? Yeah, I like him better. Do I like him better than Biff? Um, the 55? I, I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh but he is an awful lot of fun in this movie. And I I think this movie, you know, hearing Wilson talk about this movie in particular, it, it's this is one that stretched him more than the others because he had to learn to ride a horse and and do a, a, a like throw a lariat and do all of the Western stunt stuff that uh, working with just this exceptional class of of stunt performers who. Um, you know, apparently we're quite eager to get on horses and do cool stuff in a, in a good old fashioned Western uh, set of Western sequences. And, you know, I think he held his own absolutely in this this horse riding gun toting universe. I thought it was fantastic. He is fun as this character. I I again, we, we've already talked about the duality of the actor, uh, the various actors in multiple roles. He's the one that bugs me the least. And honestly, if they had just left it as him and it was just him across time as the multiple versions and incarnations of Biff, I honestly would probably not care. I think I probably would be totally OK if Biff, Griff, Buford, if it was always this same actor. I. I only end up really struggling mostly in this film because of Leah Thompson playing now his wife. Like, weirdly, that's the thing that I'm just like, wait a minute, isn't that his mother that, you know, that's like the weird stuff going on? So, um, yeah, so for, for Buford, I enjoy him. And actually, I may enjoy uh, Buford, even though I, he's not given the screen time that we get with Biff in the previous two films. I I may enjoy Buford the most, but that's just because I think Tom uh, Wilson seemed to have found a joy with performing an Old West character. Like, he just seems to just get into it and really um, fit that world really well. Really, really well. Yeah, I think so, too. I think he was right at home, and he clearly loved it. Like, he was having a, a good time 
you know, hearing him talk about it. the other interesting thing to hear him talk about, which I think is fantastic, is that the uh, this he he brings this up in with respect to the first movie, uh, it, which I don't think we talked about the Eric Stoltz replacement. Um, he and and Doc uh, both say, uh, you know, we we thought Christopher Lloyd both said we thought every day was a maybe day um, when. Uh, there was talk of uh, Eric Stoltz being fired. Like they all thought they were going to be fired and replaced because they knew something was wrong. They didn't know what it was. And I think that's really fascinating to come all the way from that level of uncertainty in the first movie to this movie, which which for their roles seems really thriving. Right. It just feels like these movies are uh, this movie is about them, um, you know, more so Doc for sure. But I, I, I think that's really cool. To, to watch this, to watch them flourish in this trilogy. They made good use of them. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It is interesting, the world of big-budget Hollywood projects that have enough of a budget early in the project to say, we need we have a problem, let's figure out who we need to replace and replace right. them, as yeah. opposed to some indie film where you're just like, well, hell, this is what we got. We got to figure out how to make it work. <laughs> Oh, you mean the mic wasn't recording for that scene? Oh, well, sound, put a song on it. That's right. right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that is interesting. We get some other interesting uh, performers in here. Uh, well, one, we should just mention Richard Dysart, who we know and love, uh, pops up barbed as a wire salesman. barbed wire salesman. <laughs> uh, a, a very expositional barbed wire salesman who's the one who has to be the one in the train mentioning the whole, um, you know, how much Doc was in love with this woman, blah, 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 only to have it be uh, Clara who actually is hearing all of this. You know, the whole I don't love moment. That. The, yeah, yeah, the turn for her cheeky it it plays yeah not not super great but uh you know it is what it is but the the the, the trio that's definitely worth talking about it's the um the three uh old western actors who pop up in the movie um in the bar um we yeah, have the pat saloon buttram, old timers yeah pat buttram harry carey jr and dub taylor as as three guys in there having some drinks and uh, just giving some great lines. Dub Taylor has always been one of those character actors that has a face that I just love and uh, just works so well. And then I think I, I don't know which if it's Pat Buttram or Harry Carey Jr. who has that voice that, that yeah I think that's that Harry cracks Carey Jr. when when he's talking that um, Robert Zemeckis I believe doesn't he then use him again as one of the bullet characters that little cartoon bullets in um, Who Framed Roger Rabbit yes yeah I I love this and it was interesting to read that it was these guys in this movie that got the movie more attention in terms of just the the making of and about the movies because of their legacy in Western cinema, that as a promotional tool, just casting these guys as the saloon old timers was really good for the press of this movie. And it, it probably had an outsized effect on the number of people wanting to talk about it. Uh, that was really interesting. Yeah, no, it was, it was super, super cool to see them just kind of popping up in here. Uh, and it actually is um, Pat Buttram, who's the one who pops up. Oh, as he's the, the voice. Yeah, he's oh, the okay. and I, right, I, the I, Roger Rabbit, of course, was a couple years before this. So, yeah, I and I'm not so much of a student of the old Western movies to to have been able to to place and name them just knowing that they were there. Uh, but their voices, I think, were were um, as notable as their as their faces. 
uh, Dub me. Taylor, like though, like uh, I don't know, like he's he is a face that I recognize so well, and I and it's always in. I'm not sure what the hat is, but it's that hat. It's almost like a a bowler hat, you know, like. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I and I'm not sure what movie specifically I even think of with that image of Dub Taylor, but it's like that's Dub Taylor, you know, he's in that hat and uh, with kind of that that. Uh, look on his face so i don't know it's it's funny how these things just burn into your head um over time this is exactly the image little house on the prairie is where it's from pete little house on the prairie i'm looking him up right now (laughs) that is the uh the version of deb taylor burned in my head because of that face i'm going to drop it into our chat for those of you who are uh, members you can hop into our discord community and join in the chat while we're recording this um, but it's it's that version of Dub Taylor that is so much. Yes. Oh, absolutely. That's him. Yeah. Okay. That's him. Yep. You know, I had him swapped in my head for uh, Harry Carey Jr. Harry Carey Jr. is not him. That nope, is Dub nope. Taylor. All right. Yep. The other one is Burton Gillum, uh, who is the other uh, sort of face of note, uh, who was the cult gun salesman. Uh, he is. He has one of those faces and voices uh that i thought was it was really great and uh it, you know speaking of the chat room brian uh in the chat room uh, aptly notes he was the he was in blazing saddles as another uh, fantastic western for him to to show up he's got 94 credits he's been in a ton a ton of stuff and i loved uh i loved watching him and show up in this one you know what i always think of him in <laughs> hmm. Honeymoon in Vegas. He's one of the Elvis impersonators, the ones that yes. are jumping out of the plane. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> oh man, yeah, I, he's, he's great. Yeah, another face. There are a lot of faces throughout this that that I love. Um, speaking of faces, <laughs> uh, yes, yes. Speaking of faces, yeah. uh, and this goes to the issue, one of our biggest issues from the last film, but Flea as Needles and his gang. We get this whole end. Uh, luckily, the ripples through time work because Marty drives over to Jennifer's place and she's sleeping on the porch. They have this whole, uh, it was all a crazy dream, uh, which is, of course, one of the fantastic uh, tropes that you get in this film. The whole, it was all just a dream. But the whole thing is they go driving and they have this challenge by needles and what you matter you chicken this is the the character turn that marty has taken he had the same thing when earlier in the film when when buford calls him yella and uh they they go at it there but this is the the final resolution to that whole thing the chicken resolution and uh we see that marty has actually grown um but again it just so it, stupid. It plays. It's it was so frustrating stupid. in the last film that I just hate it in this film. Like when when I see needles pull up at the end, I'm like, oh. and this is that whole car accident that they talked about yeah. in the last film um, that, uh, you know, exposition Lorraine from the future had. And yeah. My problem with it is not necessarily that it's not a sign that he's grown. At this point, I think at the end of this movie, uh, you know, they have enough precedent from the second film to kind of lean into the chicken thing. I'm okay with that. What I hate about it is Marty is in this position to change in his life, to make a different choice, to not 
take stupid gambles and chooses to do the one thing that is potentially more ridiculous than flooring it and racing needles, which is to floor it in reverse. <laughs> I was like, did what the he? Hell I don't. I didn't doing? see him check his rearview mirror to no. make sure there wasn't a car there. It's awful. It's so stupid. What kind? What kind of behavior is this? <laughs> Avoiding risk to do something more risky. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you sure showed needles. Yeah. Uh, God, I just it I just is so it. frustrating. I, I I the only thing I hate more than that is as I've already expressed my disdain for it's Jennifer's facts exposition yeah. nonsense that facts, we have facts position. Very call that fact facts yeah. position. <laughs> Glossary. It's terrible. Another glossary. Really Exposition. <laughs> it's really, it's really bad, and it's again just demonstrates how underwritten uh, the character is, and the fact that they didn't have enough for her to do to actually give her something as a character, and just had to use her as a narrative tool. Um, yeah. I, yep, I yep, hate yep. that. That's yep. not good. So, oh man, this uh, this film, I, I I really enjoy it. I will say, everything with the train at the end is, I think, some of the most spectacular uh, part of this film. It's exhilarating the way that it's constructed, the different way that the the heated elements kind of blow to kind of get the train going faster and faster. Like, all of that plays exceptionally well. The whole, the the hoverboard gag, um, like, all of it works. It, it all is, uh, it's effective, it's interesting, it's exciting, and it builds very effectively to the the climax of the of the. DeLorean shooting off across the in the the train track that isn't there as the train goes crashing below it. It's just it's a it's a perfect ending for this film. I have so much fun once we get onto the train at the end. It's just great stuff. Yes, I love that. I think it's fantastic. Um I it is when we get back to the future uh that I think it's I only stopped because I the the DeLorean that the other train, the modern train crushes that's on the tracks. It feels like it sort of just incinerates. I I every time I watch this, I think I think that I think that train would derail. Like, I think the train would have killed a lot of people, <laughs> not just derail, but just like at least stop. Like, yeah, <laughs> it, for, from their perspective, it looks like a car on the tracks. Do yeah. they just not care? Like, eh, you know what? We're just gonna, we've got a deadline <laughs> the, on the uh, complete other side of that. That it, entire like effect is the DeLorean is on train wheels like it rolls. It's been coasting. Like, wouldn't it maybe? I understand that the, just the force of, of impact, but the train wasn't going that fast. Like, is there any sense it would have been crushed and pushed? Like, yeah, and not completely right. disintegrated. So that's it's an like they that, made it out of Legos suddenly. It is like they, yeah, <laughs> suddenly it just fell up. But there were no well, screws or rivets or anything like that. And also, none of the cars that are at the uh, the crossing do anything like the, there no, are people but nobody cares no one cares ah, car and got, nobody clue, like car the car blown is destroyed to totally destroyed <laughs> marty leaves the scene right comes back what an hour later and the debris is all still there and nobody's done anything with it like the place is totally deserted 
Yeah, not I a soul to be seen. Amazing. I was wondering because, no. like, because then we get the flying train. Nope, no yeah. one is there. Right. This is the most, the <laughs> quietest. They, they always in all these films. This, this has become a trope in and of itself. They yeah. always manage when they're doing time travel work, whether it's on the street out in front of Marty's place or downtown 1955 or this this particular bridge. No one is ever around when there is it's a, a train. weather experiment. <laughs> yeah, oh, my gosh. Uh, the. the they have so, no maybe it's a peripheral vision thing that everybody's there, but they're all looking slightly to the left or right and they can't see it. Yeah, uh, that's always that's possible. So I have <laughs> I have a problem with some of how they handle the mechanics of the end. It does take me out of the movie, but I love the actual train explosion, the run up to the explosion. I love the log mechanic, like the setups and payoffs there are really good. Uh, and so that's that's fun. I like the the art like the the arrow in the fuel line, right? That setup of, of, you know, having lost fuel. Now we have new canon to introduce about the, uh, about the DeLorean that in fact, the fusion generator doesn't power the combustion engine. They've never actually talked about that. Um, so uh, that became an important part of the, of the movie in this, uh, you know, of the limitation in this movie that they have to overcome. So I and I had issues with that because does that mean in 2015 future in the movie that every flying car actually has to stop uh, to get gas and also then has to go put stuff into their little converter thing so that that it can power up? Oh, that is a oh, see, now you've broken me because I, I do think that that's probably because why do they why do they have service stations in like it, they go to the service station in the future well we like see cars a pull station. in yeah, yeah. but I, we don't we don't know if it's filling up with like traditional gasoline is what you're or are they just putting banana trash. peels and trash into <laughs> the mr fusion into the, mr fusion what is the mr fusion fusion device powering if not time circuits like it must be powering the engine to the car to hover or maybe it's just the hover circuits but the combustion engine turns on when it's on the ground. Ugh. You're right. Now I, now I don't like it. I did like it, and now I don't like it anymore. Stupid. You know what every hoverboard needs is a little baby Mr. Fusion. <laughs> like, how does the <laughs> hoverboard... Like, cause, like, does it just plug into... It, it just, uh, it's because uh, it's a, supposedly a cold fusion levitating device. That's what it supposedly is, right? <sighs> Why are we... Digging no, yep. so deep into no, all this we don't stuff. know. Yeah. Also, we don't know science the way people. Some people know science. We so. know movie science. Uh, so the movie science is uh, now. I don't like the even, but I do like the, <laughs> the flying train at the end. I like the flying train and the way it so leans in on that sort of like uh, steampunkiness of, yes, of yes, yes. Jules Verne and the design of it. And when it lifts up and flies away, uh, it is it, you know it, it is just a, an exhilarating bit that reminds you that this part of the story is over. The trilogy is over. It it also I think re completes and reframes the um the the trilogy as a trilogy for me at the end i get the end i get the title in the end i get the big music and the train flies into my face um and uh, i i think it makes it a complete experience with the sense of hope that i love at the end of movies like this that something is still going on even though i can't see it and i think that is a that's like the the childlike wonder of the movies that i like so much and i think this movie is uh nails that yeah that's yeah, a lot of fun it is a fun one. 
Before we move on past this, um, since we've talked about it a number of times, um, Chekhov, Pete, are you familiar with Chekhov? Yeah. Uh, there are a couple elements um, labeled on uh, tvtropes.org uh, <laughs> oh, as as uh, under the Chekhov's gun trope. Uh, any sense as to what they are? I'll tell you, I've already mentioned one of them. Check the uh, gun. I already nope. have. Is it is it the gun? No, there is no, no. Something that is set up and then paid off. Do you want to guess? Or do you want me to tell you? No, I just want you to tell me. Well, the first is the hoverboard. He brings it. We see it. Yeah. It's in the back of his car. It's yep. not dealt with until it's needed at the end when Doc uh, rescues Clara. Yeah, and they actually make a note of it to say, oh, don't forget your floating board when they're in the movie theater parking lot. Right, right, right. Yeah, right. okay, good. By the way, movie theater, there's no way that that car got 88 miles per hour across the drive Totally agree. Drive-in movie theater. Yeah. Yes. Hey, would you call that Chekhov's Native American uh, hunting party. <laughs> it oh, just immediately paid off. That just, that felt so of the era. Uh, yep. And it honestly felt dated. It honestly felt like 1955 yeah. version of uh, a party of Native Americans. I will say Monument Valley has never looked more beautiful. Uh, great, great filming at Monument Valley for this. Yeah. Uh, the second Chekhov's gun Earlier in the movie, Doc uses a scale model to illustrate his plan to get the DeLorean up to 88 miles per hour. Later, Clara comes to Doc's shop and finds the model DeLorean with Time Machine written on it, which makes her <laughs> realize that Emmett was telling the truth about being from the future. <laughs> That's awesome. Or he's just an avid modeler. <laughs> like, uh, okay. Yes. So those are the two uh, Chekhov I, you know, we, we talked about this in our Paddington series, and we should just see what other checkoff elements come from this franchise. But uh, yeah, so I there, like that. there you go. All right. Well, everybody, we'll be right back. But first, our credits. The Next Reel is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson, music by The Magnetic Buzz, Oriel Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at d-numbers.com, boxofismojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. Sort of a Chekhov's gun is the Chekhov's gun from Back to the Future Part 2 in the video game that ends up getting paid off here in the video game. Well, there's definitely the setups uh, from, I mean, it's something we didn't really talk about, but even even the fistful of dollars element that he yeah, saw right. uh, that Biff was watching in the, in the messed up 1985 uh, he uses that element from the movie here in this film um, as putting the um, the steel plate from the front of the stove under yes. his poncho. So yeah, that was great. Yeah. So I mean, uh, yeah, there are right. there are definitely some more um, setups and payoffs like that. So for sure, for sure. And I do uh, one other thing that we didn't talk about um, is 
some of the, the I mean, Christopher Lloyd is already a very physical actor and he's very funny. And I love the responses that he does his face when he sees there's a little bit of that in the very open when, you know, Marty is in the house and he doesn't see Marty in the house and he's making his recording and he sees Marty and he gets he freaks out. He does that patented Christopher Lloyd freak out. He does the um, anything with him. Uh, drinking and the, his relationship with the bartender saying, oh, you remember what happened? <laughs> he only had, he stood there for hours talking and never taken a drink like that. That stuff was priceless. Priceless, I tell you. I thought he was great around the booze. He was a lot of fun. Do you think he actually fell on the table? I don't Got know. drunk past that. Do you think that was he did I his think, own stunt? Yeah, I think he totally did. He said, not unless I get really drunk. The table comes over him and hits him in the back. Like, that's surprised he wasn't actually concussed. (laughs) All right. Are there sequels and or remakes to this, Andy? What's interesting is Zemeckis uh, really is adamantly opposed to ever having um, more films or sequels made from this. He doesn't want remakes. He doesn't want anything with um, with this franchise ever to be done again. And as the as the writer and producer, uh, he seems to have the power to keep it from happening. Um, he said, unless it was uh, Michael J. Fox and with his health conditions, it, it's not going to happen. But, you know, we'll never return to this. I mean, there had been speculation. Tom Holland had said at some point that some producer had talked to him about coming on board to uh, reprise it. But he said he didn't uh, want he didn't think that, you know, he would be able to carry that uh, the weight of the films, which he called perfect films. Um, So I I don't think that we'll get more. Um, You know, we did get a short film that came out in 2015, right when the film came out called Doc Brown Saves the World, which was Christopher Lloyd in a little little thing that he did uh there was of course the video game the animated series which you brought up there was a board game the ride which is at universal which fun uh fun story fun ish story um we went on it when i went to universal studios and got stuck the the car did not come down (laughs) so so they're just like well we'll just leave you up there for the next one and see if it comes down after that and so we basically got to go on it a second time and then it did come down in fact but um it was kind of fun. I don't, I, can you, I don't want to totally aside, to take us on a derail our conversation, but I don't actually know what the ride is. It was, um, it was Doc and Biff. And I believe Marty pops up briefly, but mostly you're with Doc and Biff. And it's, it's one of those things where you go all through time and, and you're traveling in a DeLorean and with Doc, I think. I honestly can't remember specifically, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's, um, you're in a little DeLorean, you and however eight people, and it raises up, and you're in this big, um, uh, kind of a curved screen, of like a full view thing where you're kind of watching this this whole thing playing out in your whole space, and it's it's a moving ride where you're flying around and the car's moving, uh, very much kind of like the Indiana Jones ride or yeah, you know, yeah. any of those sorts of things, and so um, so it was fun. I mean, it was a fun little uh, fun little ride to do. But I, and I think they're all gone now. My understanding is they've replaced it with the Simpsons ride now. Oh, well, that's sad. Oh, there it is. The full ride, full experience. Um, <laughs> I was just looking at that. Thank you for coming to the Institute of Future Technology on behalf of Dr. Emmett Brown. Yeah. All right. And did you cool. ever see um, the thing that um, it was a, it was an April Fool's video with um, Christopher Lloyd and I think Tony Hawk. 
Uh, yeah, did you ever see that where they, bit. Where, yeah, where they make a fake, where they do this whole thing about having come up with an actual hoverboard yeah. finally. And, and, um, it, it was a very fun bit that they released. Um, looks like it was eight years ago. Um, and it was, um, yeah, this whole thing that they had actually finally created a hoverboard and, um, the whole thing was just a spoof. Um, well, kind of as an I, April I, Fool's prank. Wasn't it around that time that some actual scientists came up with the the technology that would get us there? But um, then they said it is practically impossible because the temperatures you have to keep the hoverboard at in order the hover like element at, you know, because it's we don't have like uh, room temperature whatever uh, the reaction is. You can't do it, like, practically. But they could slide a thing around a table as long as it was really cold, uh, which got my hopes up. But I don't know what I'm talking about. I would never ride a hoverboard. As long as you're doing it, as long as you're doing it in Antarctica, you're totally fine. Yeah. Yeah, it's wicked cold. And the whole whole thing about that technology, what I really want out of that hoverboard technology is I want what's in star wars where they actually are able to push stuff around like gurneys and you know dollies and stuff that hover that's what i really want move having heavy things i don't want to be on it myself (laughs) so you don't want a a land speeder you just want uh, a lifter well i'm just saying i don't want a skateboard i would absolutely want a land speeder oh yeah okay they stop though i just I have stop anxiety on the speeders. You just slide into stuff. <laughs> just, just slide to a stop. Just really reckless, really reckless. But I, are, I'd be into are. it. All right. Um, what were you talking? Where, where were we? We were on the game, and then there was the hover thing, the hover. Yeah, gag. and then just just all the other stuff: comics, books, so video games, stuff. and there was a Toyota commercial in uh, in 2015. They were marketing. I don't remember what the car was, but it was a new Toyota, the, like the Mirai or something like that. That's yeah. the whole concept of the commercial was like, you know, the fuel of the future or whatever is supposed to be a more fuel efficient vehicle, basically. But that's <laughs> I think that's about the extent of it. So, I mean, lots of stuff, but um, all right. Uh, no more movies. No more movies that we shall be seeing. How did it do at award season? You know, it did oh, okay. Nowhere near as well as the previous two. It had five wins with 11 other nominations. At the Saturn Awards, Tom Wilson won Best Supporting Actor, and Alan Silvestri won Best Score. It was nominated for Best Sci-Fi Film. We talked about this last time because this and Back to the Future Part Two both ended up in the same um, awards year with the Saturn. So it was nominated for Best Science Fiction Film, but lost to Total Recall. Mary Steenburgen was nominated for Best Supporting Actress, but lost to Whoopi Goldberg for Ghost. I uh, was nominated uh, for Best Director, but lost to James Cameron for the, the Abyss and lost to Total Recall for Best Costumes. Um, at the Hugo Awards, which are the best science fiction or fantasy works of the previous year awarded by the World Science Fiction Society, it was nominated for Best Dramatic Presentation, but lost to Edward Scissorhands. The other films nominated Ghost, The Witches, and Total Recall. So, you know, it was in it was a good time for some interesting science fiction and fantasy films to be coming out. And certainly it fits in the mix, but it's also, I would agree, it's not the best of the bunch. So how to do at the box office? Did he make his money?
Well, the final part of the trilogy, uh, Zemeckis had yet another $40 million to work with. Uh, and uh, I'm going to straight up tell you right now. Uh, well, first off, $40 million, that's $78.4 million in today's dollars. Both this film and the previous film are both listed as having had a budget of $40 million, But there was also something that said they had $40 million to make the two films back-to-back. But it's it's very unclear if they had $40 million to make them back-to-back per film or total. They're both listed as having a budget of $40 million. So I'm just going with 40 million each, but it's entirely possible it was actually 20 million each and just 40 million to do this whole thing. It's not clear uh, the way that any of this is put together. But what does that do to Apfum, Andy? That really well, must complicate your spreadsheet. It, yeah, Tell me I'm more. Just, I'm just saying it has a budget of 40 million and we're just <laughs> going with it and I'm not okay. I'm not going deep. Um, this film opened May 24th, 1990, a mere six months after the last film, opposite two films that I don't remember at all, Firebirds and the limited release of Jesus of Montreal. Do you remember either of those films? Nope, they don't exist. <laughs> well, this film could not hold the number one spot opposite the oncoming glut of summer entertainment, but it did manage to at least stay in the top 10 for six weeks. Did not do nearly as well as its predecessors, but it still did well for itself, earning $88.3 million domestically and $156.8 million internationally for a total gross of $480.3 million in today's dollars. That leaves the film with an adjusted profit per finished minute of almost $3.4 million. And even though it wasn't the success of the previous two, it does mark a strong position for this whole trilogy. Well, I'm sure glad we talked about it. I think that... Um I'm glad that it made some money. I'm glad that three for me is now better than two. Uh, I had no idea that was going to be the lesson learned out of this trilogy. So um, <laughs> I, I had a blast. We didn't even talk about the about the Rube Goldberg machine in three that I thought was a neat comeback from uh, from episode <laughs> there, one. There were some strange things that they had in this film, like the Rube Goldberg machine. I'm like, is this just his thing? Like, did, do we need to have that? We never had it in 1955. It was just, you know, you know, just I don't, I don't know. In that respect, isn't it interesting that this movie could make like a, a pretty easy sequel to part one like you really I, I think you could just watch these two back to back and skip the second one altogether <laughs> <We're>, <laughs> that's entirely possible the other yeah. weird thing just as a side note was like what was up with the strange magnifying glass gag that they had not once but twice in the film yeah yeah they really liked that gag a lot uh, I mean it's it's thing that I like in movies because it just is funny to look at but to, to pull it twice I was just like wow they really liked it really yeah. liked it oh so hard it's a fun movie i do enjoy it um i wish that it was um i i wish that when i watch them that i find that either the second or third really held up as strong as the first film does um but i still do enjoy the heart of this one and so in the end i end up enjoying the trilogy largely because it ends on um a note full of heart yeah me too all right. Well, we'll be right back for our ratings, everybody. But first, here's the trailer for next week's movie, Jason Moore's 2012 film, Pitch Perfect, kicking off our next series looking at some serious acapella. Hi there. Welcome to Barton University. Here's your official BU rape whistle. Don't blow it unless it's actually happening. Hi. Any interest in joining our music group? Whenever you're ready, dude. Oh, not a dude. We sing songs without any instruments. It's all from our mouths. Yikes. Sorry, I don't even sing. What's your name? Fat Amy. You call yourself Fat Amy? Yeah, so twig bitches like you don't do it behind my back. Bye. 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 Bye.
on. You can sing. You have to join the Bellas. I can't concentrate until you cover your junk. I'm not leaving here until you sing. Bulletproof, fire away, fire away. You have a lovely voice. Thanks. Boy, the bad boys of acapella have just gotten better. You girls are awesome. Lee Horrible, I Hate You, Kill Yourselves, Girl Powers. This is a list of all of the songs that we have ever performed. There's nothing from this century on here. It's not enough to be good. We need to be different. Our goal is to get to the finals. How are we paying for regionals? A bikini car wash is definitely out of the question. No, Aubrey, I'm like super good at bikini car washes. No more wasting time with school or boyfriends. Can I trust you will add your own cardio? Yeah, no, don't put me down for cardio. What are you doing? Horizontal running. Are you guys getting ready for the riff off? What's a riff off? Shorty, get down, good lord. Strictly bitch, you don't play around. Cover much ground. Got game by the pound. I like the way you work No digging. I got a bag. Remix this business. Like what boring estrogen filled set have you prepared for us? Hey, Amy! I just shot! You guys are gonna get pitch slapped so hard, your man boobs are gonna concave. I like the way you work. I have a feeling we should kiss. I sometimes have a feeling I can do crystal mess, but then I think, mm, better not. Okay, Andy, uh, we're going to talk about some Letterboxd right now. Letterboxd, it's our favorite social network for movie lovers. If you do want to get in on the business with Letterboxd, if you fall in love with it like we have and you want to upgrade to a pro or patron membership, just use the discount code NEXTREEL at checkout uh, or visit thenextreel.com slash Letterboxd. You'll get 20% off works for renewals as well. Andy, what are you going to do for your uh, for your review here? If there were a sixth star you could borrow from somewhere else, would you do it? The interesting thing with like revisiting these and really thinking more critically about them is I'm, I do find more issues with both the second and third film that bog them down in some ways, but I still do enjoy this film so much. I feel like with that, I'm going to end up at three and a half and a heart for this one. Oh, three and a half. Wait a minute. What were you on the second one? Two? Two. Two. So I was much higher originally on the second one and went down to three. And this one, I don't even know what I was. I didn't even have a rating in it just to watch in Letterboxd. So I'm just locking it in at four and then five for the second one or for the first one. I'm sorry. So five, three, four. Also, they're all hearts. Also, they're all hearts. Yeah, I mean, you know, even the second one, even though I only rated it two stars, is still a heart. Like, I enjoy the film. It's just so much of it is so stupid, but I still enjoy it. <laughs> yes, so much of it is so stupid. Well, that was easy. All right. Uh, well, remember, everybody, you can uh, visit thenextreel.com slash letterbox, and you can get your own patron or pro membership. It does work for renewals as well. And on top of that, if you would like to hear this show without hearing all of these ads all the time, remember, uh, you can become a member of The Next Reel and join us to get your episodes early. You get our retake episodes. That's our next episode for members is a retake episode where we're looking at the entire trilogy 
of this, just kind of as a, a macroscopic view, as I always say, of the whole. And we'll add them to our flick chart. And then members also get our monthly flick chart re-ranking episodes. So member bonus episodes, members get all sorts of stuff. So if you want to skip the ads, get everything early and get a whole bunch of extra episodes, learn more about becoming a member at thenextreel.com slash membership. So what did you think about Back to the Future Part 3? We want to know. Head into the Show Talk channel on Discord, where we'll be talking about this movie this week. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Letterbox giveth, Andrew. As letterboxed, always do it. I've got a four star, so I'm going to go first because it's one star more than yours, right? <laughs> it is, yes. Yeah. It's from uh, Lindsay, who says, uh, probably my favorite Western that I've ever seen, to be honest. I love the shot where you see a little bit of his butt. Was that supposed to be fan service? Do people find Marty McFly sexy? <laughs> I love that. That slays me. I can't believe we forgot to talk about it. There's the whole scene where you see Marty McFly's naked butt. Is there a butt double? You think that was really him? This this was the era when butts were in fashion. Lethal Weapon, I think, turned a whole thing in the 80s, <laughs> early 90s into... Butts were big. We need more butts. Uh, awesome. All right. Well, I have a three-star by Russman who has this to say. I don't know why Doc is sad about the idea of leaving Clara in the past. I'm sure there's someone that looks exactly like her in 1985 or any era. <laughs> That's awesome. I, uh, I, <laughs> I like it. That this uh, anyway. That's fantastic, and I think all everybody has doppelgangers across time, and that's the important lesson from these movies. Thanks, Letterboxd. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.